This is Chthonia, the world of the dark feminine. And welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. This week, we're going to talk about the Egyptian goddess Isis. Uh, I had a request for this. Uh, Isis is one of those goddesses that we tend to think of as being very motherly. She has a lot to do with healing, uh, protector of children and, and, and childbirth in ancient Egypt. But, and actually, Isis is the, with her son Horus, there are statues of her sitting, suckling her son. Okay, she, he's um, her. He, you know, she's she's got him, you know, sitting at her breast, and that is actually the model for what we think of as the statuary of Jesus and Mary, or the Madonna and Child um, statues. They are all based on these Egyptian statues of Isis, Horus. Um, which has led some people to conflate the myth of Horus, her son, at least one of the reasons that they tend to conflate that with uh, the myth of Jesus. And while there are some similarities between the Horus-Jesus myth, it's pretty much been proven that that's not the source of it. In fact, we talked about, you know, the Jesus myth comes from a lot of different places, particularly from Dionysus, as we talked about in the last episode. But in this episode, we want to look specifically at, at her role uh, not only is a mother and a healer and a magician, but she is also very much connected to the underworld, and she does have a dangerous and fierce side as well. Now, the name Isis actually means throne, okay? So she is, and she is frequently pictured with a throne on top of her head. It looks like an L-shaped thing that's meant to be a throne, although she is at other times pictured with uh, cow horns and the sun disk, uh, or with uh, the serpent or the Urias on her head, uh, connecting her, well, first of all, it connects her with royalty, because the idea of throne, I mean, who sits on the throne but the king, or the pharaoh in this case, right? So she's very much associated with royalty and with the pharaohs, and with guiding the pharaohs, particularly after death, but um, as well as, you know, heal, you know providing healing um, during lifetime as well. So she's, uh, she's frequently represented as a, I'm reading here from the notes, just some general notes here, represented as a beautiful woman wearing a sheath dress and either the hieroglyph sign of the throne of a solar disc and a cow's horns um, or of the throne. Sometimes she's represented as a scorpion, a bird, a sow, or a cow. Uh, and there's no references to her before the fifth dynasty, which was from 2465 to about 2325 uh, BCE. But where you see her mentioned uh, first, and, and really mentioned many times, is in the pyramid texts, which are the which contain the the sort of books of, of magical formulae that uh, pharaohs and, and members of royalty used in particular to successfully cross into the underworld at death. Within the pyramids, you always had the uh, very elaborate preparations. You had the mummy laid out, but the mummy was laid out with. Um, you know, they, they could have had their animals mummified and kept with them. They could they would have had um, food and drink and all other kinds of things left for their, you know, for their existence after death. Uh, and they would have had the um, Ushabati or the, the little um, statues that were supposed to have a kind of life imbued in them, um, a lot like the golem statues. I talk about this in my book, Death and the Maiden, and I'll have a reference to my book 
uh, down below, because the very first chapter does deal with Egypt, and I am going to read some from that chapter uh, with regard to Isis herself. Now, the Ushabati, of course, they were, they were meant to be sort of servants or assistants to the pharaoh after death. So there was definitely a sense, as you not, which was very common to cultures then, that you had a, a tomb or a kind of uh, ancestral place that, where the body was buried or the cremated remains were buried that also, in, in, in case of Egyptians, obviously, they had the, the mummification rituals which connect to uh, Isis's uh, brother-husband, Osiris. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but the, but so you had the mummified remains of the actual, um, you know, the actual king, the actual pharaoh. And, you know, and when, of course, we've, you know, uncovered and a lot of, opened a lot of tombs and, and, and seen a lot of these mummies. So this is not, this is certainly not a concept that's unfamiliar to anybody. But the pyramid texts, they come from a period where the, the afterlife and the afterlife rituals applied primarily to royalty, in fact, almost exclusively to royalty. Later on, um, when things became a bit more, um, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say egalitarian or democratic, I'm not entirely sure. Certainly there was changes in the way Egyptian leadership uh, worked after a certain period of time, and then there was the period of time when they became part of the Roman Empire, and uh, the Ptolemies were installed there, and you know the whole saga of Cleopatra and so forth, that that comes in that sort of early Roman Empire period. Um, but in the time in between there, you have after the pyramid texts, you actually have a set of writings called the coffin texts, and the coffin texts, uh, excuse me, texts have to do with the, uh, you know, they're 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 very similar in, in terms of uh, purpose to the pyramid texts, but. There's there there there's more of an um, an application to the uh, to the general person and not just to somebody who's royalty. Okay, so um, and of course in those texts she's able to extend her help to all Egyptians, not just the pharaoh and their family. Now Isis is mentioned um, in and also in something called the Aeneid, uh, which is a, a myth that's it's said to have its origins with the priests of Heliopolis. Uh, who are the followers of the sun god uh, Ra or Ra? Okay, and in the, this myth, okay, there's there's it's uh, said that Isis is the daughter of the earth god Geb and the sky goddess Nuit. Now, Egypt is one of the places where you don't have an earth mother; you have an earth father. Okay? However, Isis, uh, as we're going to talk about, um, Jung actually mentions. You know his his idea that that Isis does end up kind of serving a role as an Earth Mother, um, given the attributes that she has. Uh, nonetheless, she's supposed to be the child of Geb and Nuit. Now, initially, there it was the idea that Ra, um, you know, Nuit was basically supposed to be the spouse of Ra and had an illicit affair uh, with Geb, and you know was bearing you know was to bear these children. So ba he basically decreed that Nuit could not bear any children. Um, during any of the days um, of the year. And at that time, there were 360 days in the year. So uh, there ends up being a, a um, the, the moon ends up gambling with, um, I'm trying to think, with uh, Ta. I want to say it's either, was it Ta or was it Thoth? Um, in any case, I believe it was Ta. They, they gambles with the, um, the moon, uh, moon god and ends up winning um, the moon ends up winning back uh, five extra days, uh, you know, during the year. So that's how we end up with the 365. 
you know, dealing with the, the lunar cycle and, and, and so forth. So in any case, in that five days, Newt's able to give birth to her children, who are Osiris, Seth, Nepethys, Isis. Okay, and Isis ends up being married to um, Osiris, and um, Nepethys ends up being married to Set. Um, now, in some versions, Tawaret, the, the hippo goddess, is the wife of Seth. But in this particular version of, the, of what they call the Aeneid, um, they have this, uh, this, this connection. So, okay, so the main story here is that, uh, that okay, so, that, so Isis and Osiris are married, and there becomes this, and, and Osiris is the king of Egypt at this point. So the main story connected with Isis is this particular saga between Osiris and Set. And, you know, in this sort of plot for, you know, for him to overthrow Osiris and get the kingship of Egypt. So this is what happened. So the, the story, the way it happens is there is a, there's a great feast or a great, um, great party. And that Seth invites everybody to, including Osiris and Isis. And as a gift, he has a, this, um, this beautifully carved sarcophagus, which of course is the coffin that the mummy is laid in. And he, in an almost Cinderella-type way, Seth basically says, okay, but of course he's had it constructed, by the way, privately to all of Osiris's specifications. So he, and how he knew that, I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's how the story goes. So he basically lets everybody get in to try it and basically says, whoever this fits, uh, that the sarcophagus is theirs. It's their gift. Okay. So Osiris... Uh, so that, of course, everybody tries it, and then Osiris gets in, and of course it fits him perfectly, but then Seth slams the lid down, you know, seals it shut, and throws it into the Nile River to drown him, okay? So it was, so this, of course, leads to the the Isis's search, you know, in her, you know, she's grieving. She's associated a lot with lamentation and keening, Okay. Uh, which are also, as we know, rituals having to do with the dead. Not not just in Egyptian culture, but in a lot of cultures. The weeping and wailing and the gnashing of women, the keening, as they call it. Uh, you can look up keening. It's a very interesting tradition. Uh, maybe at some point I should you know, do a special episode or something just on keening. But keening is, you know, is the women who, particularly women, you know, and, and initially it was the idea that one dressed in like sackcloth and ashes and threw things over their head and tore at their hair and, and, and weeped and wailed, and that this was actually part of the right to uh, properly bring the dead person to their, their next destination. Um, and, and, you know, and it was also part of the rights to sort of keep the dead um, away, you know, to not only guide them to their next destination, but to make sure that they didn't come back and haunt the living. This is more what we see in Greco-Roman kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, because obviously the, the whole conception of the afterlife is somewhat different in ancient Egypt. Um, in fact, very different. So there's, so what they end up doing is they, you know, so Osiris is trapped in this chest and Isis goes in search of this chest. So where does she end up? She ends up at Byblos, which is uh, in, in, into a home, home of, the, of the pharaoh. And she disguises herself as a nurse. And she offers to go in and nurse the, the, chil the children or the child of, of, the, um, of the queen. And of course, she's accepted in and she, you know, she's tending to this child. 
but as she's tending to the child, she decides she's going to make the child immortal. So she puts the child into the fire, and she flies around in the shape of a bird, you know, giving certain cries and so forth that presumably are the magical formula that are going to, you know, strip away the, mor- the mortality of this child. Uh, this goes on until one day the queen walks in, the, the, the pharaoh's wife, and she is, uh, she, oh, she's screaming, you know, because she sees what Isis, she sees what's happening, and she's, you know, panicked to see her child in the fire. So Isis removes the child and takes on her form, and then finally tells the, the queen who she is. Now, the reason that Isis uh, comes here and she's offering herself is because there is a, she has found out that her husband's sarcophagus was lodged in a tree, a very beautiful and fragrant tree, which was then cut down to make one of the pillars in the pharaoh's house here at Byblos. Okay, uh, I probably should have explained that first, but... Um, I'm, I'm doing this story really from memory, kind of in reverse order. So, so, they, she, so, they, so she, tells, she basically tells the pharaoh's wife, look, okay, game's up. This is who I am. I was trying to make your son immortal, but oh well, not going to happen now. Um, but what I really came for is that I, I, I need, I want this one pillar because my dead husband is in there. Okay. So the pharaoh's wife, of course, agrees to give her the pillar. So the pillar's taken, you know, taken out, given to her. And she finds the sarcophagus inside. Um, now this enrages Seth, who manages to um, <clears throat> take his brother's body and cut it into a million pieces and, and throw it all over, you know, throw it to the winds. So now she's got, now her husband, you know, now she's found the sarcophagus, but now his remains are scattered everywhere. So now she has to go find his remains and put them back together. Which she does, and with the help of Seth's wife, Nepethys, they, they fly around, again, like birds, and they put the body parts together, and he's actually mummified. He becomes like a mummy. He's bandaged up. Um, and this, of course, is probably where the tradition of mummifying the pharaoh comes from. Um, I can't swear that that's the absolute source of it, but it's that that seems to be, you know, it, it's, it's a connection one way or the other. Either they mummify Osiris because that was their practice, or because of this myth they decided, you know, mummification was the right thing um, to deal with the, um, the dead pharaoh. So Osiris then, um, now he's, he's got, they've, they found all of his body parts except for his penis. Okay. That is missing. So... Isis ends up sort of crafting a makeshift penis, and she manages to have sex with her dead husband and becomes pregnant with the god Horus, okay, the falcon-headed god. Now, what's interesting is I was, I was looking at um, the Oxford's um, Encyclopedia of Egypt on this story, and they actually talk about this uh, story of, um, Seth, of, of Osiris and Seth, and they suggest, uh, I mean, so of course, once Horus is born, Seth and Horus are enemies, okay? Um, but there was, uh, okay, so related legends, I'm just reading this from here. I'm just trying to find my, find my spot. Seth is presented as the enemy of Horus and the two figures as hostile brothers, okay, rather than Seth being his uncle, which is the version that we are talking about. And he is rather like Cain and Abel in the Bible. And in their feud, Seth is said to have torn out the eye of Horus, whereas Seth's testicles were removed by Horus. Okay. That's not an uncommon theme that you see of the two enemies 
um, one um, emasculating the other one, and then the other maybe blinding the other one. That's um, y- you see this in in versions of uh, the you know the the legend of the Fisher King, for example, with the um, the, the Muslim and the Christian um, attacking each other. A very similar um, idea of the two um, wounding each other in significant ways. Uh, and allegedly the two were involved in a homosexual episode in which Horace is violated by his brother, but also they said there's another version where Horace violates Seth. So, um, nonetheless, this was this sort of earlier version was later um, where Horace and Osiris end up becoming conflated, and then it becomes more about the brothers Osiris and Seth, and then Horace becomes the child, and, and he's fighting with his uncle Seth, who, of course, when Osiris had died, Seth had taken over rulership of Egypt. And Seth is the bringer of storms, so that's generally considered to be inauspicious um, in in the way that it's uh, treated. You know, you, you know, it's that that you know the idea of that that, that would have brought a very um, tumultuous, perhaps, and stormy period to Egypt, perhaps you know, beset by natural disasters and things. Um, so, in any case, we have we have this that you know after. You know, Horus is born, and then, of course, Osiris himself goes to the underworld and becomes king of the dead. And there's a lot of mythology after that about um, the divine judgments of Osiris, which come from, you know, when he is made the king, where, the, you know, the, the person has to come and have their heart weighed against a feather uh, in the underworld, and Osiris serves as the judge. Okay, so Osiris is connected with the underworld, so, of course, Isis as his wife would also sort of have a role as queen of the underworld. Now, to talk a little bit about um, the, the battle between Horus and Seth, I'm not going to get into that story fully, but there is a part where you have to remember Seth is Isis's brother, okay? So even though he's the enemy of her son, really her enemy because he has, he's killed her husband, he's dismembered him, taken over the kingship, you know, basically, you know, thrown them out, exiled them. Uh, Isis still, um, she still feels a certain amount of loyalty to her brother. So uh, they, they mention here, this is another uh, part of the story, it says, Isis hid with Horus in the marshes of the Nile Delta until her son was fully grown and could avenge his father and claim his throne. Because it was considered that Osiris was really the legitimate king, not Seth. She defended the child against attacks from snakes and scorpions. But because Isis was also Seth's sister, she wavered during the eventual battle between Horus and Seth. In one episode, Isis took pity on Seth, and it was in consequence beheaded by Horus, which of course was later reversed by magic. She and Horus were eventually reconciled, and Horus was able to take the throne of Egypt. <laughs> is there a pun intended there? You know, yeah, his mother is, um, his mother represents the throne, of course. Um, so, this is it. So she is, um, you know, so she's this great... She's this great healer. She's this great magician. She is this mother figure. Um, although we see she may even waver in her uh, duty to her son um, because of her, you know, because of the idea that Seth is, you know, is her brother. And of course, I should just mention as a side note that we have Seth, uh, who's also equated with Typhon a lot of the times, especially later um, when you have more Greco-Roman influence in Egypt. Seth tends to get a very bad rap. He tends to be viewed as a sort of an evil, almost satanic kind of a deity, which is not, again, like a lot of these earlier deities that have very these very stormy attributes. That's not necessarily true. It's also worth noting Seth is a storm god, and it's always the storm gods, the ones who wield the lightning, who are usually the rulers. 
Okay, so this is rather interesting turn. Unlike Yahweh or Zeus or Jupiter, or some of these other gods who, um, you know, you know, Lugan the Celtic, I mean, they, they're associated with storms in a lot of ways. But here we actually see um, a, uh, you know, you, you actually see a storm god who is considered to be evil. There's almost, there's almost a Gnostic quality to that, because as we know, the Gnostics consider uh, the creator of this world to be evil. Okay. Um, you know, and, you know, living with his head, you know, with the thunderbolt with his head in the clouds. So there's, so it's, um, you know, whether or not we're seeing cross influence on myths or not, there's no way to ever prove that, but sort of an interesting thing. Another side note that you might note, especially since we talked about Dionysus and the mystery cults in the last episode there's also a mystery cult that um, is connected to Isis, especially later on when she becomes really a chief deity with her own cult. And this happens right around the time uh, when Christianity is also up and coming, that same time period. The Isis cult is extremely popular at this time. And Isis, in this particular uh, case, now the cult, now from what I understand, the cult of Isis, you had to pay, you had to be able to, it, it was fairly expensive to join this particular secret society which is why perhaps it didn't gain as much popularity as the the Jesus cult, which was free. So, you know, there was this idea, but but nonetheless, it, it was one of the mysteries, just like we saw the these other mother goddesses who reappear. Um, Isis is another mother figure, a magical mother figure who appears at this time. Now, what was the other cult besides that of Dionysus in ancient Greece? Well, there's that of Demeter at Eleusis. And Demeter at Eleusis, that story is, as you are going to see, I mean, and I know I've, I've shared it in another podcast, but I'm going to share it for you again now and see if you can spot something. Okay, so Demeter at Eleusis. Demeter's search for her daughter Persephone took her to the palace of uh, Kelios, the king of Eleusis in Attica. She assumed the form of an old woman and asked him for shelter. He took her in to nurse Demophon and Triptolemus, his sons by Metanera. To reward his kindness, she planned to make Demophon immortal. She secretly anointed the boy with ambrosia and laid him in the fires of the hearth to burn away his mortal self. But Metanira walked in, saw her son in the fire, and screamed in fright. Demeter abandoned the attempt and then showed herself as the god, said she was the goddess. Um, and again, similarly, you know, Demophon lost his attempt, lost his, um, you know, his... He, he didn't end up becoming immortal. <laughs> Let's put it that way. When it says, instead, she taught Triptolemus the secrets of agriculture. And Triptolemus is considered to be, became sort of a Chthonic deity who was associated with agriculture. Thus, humanity learned how to plant, grow, and harvest grain. Okay. So the Eleusian mysteries, uh, they not only have to do with that death and rebirth, but also the way in which uh, humanity can sustain itself. And as we've noted, what happens in the Isis myth? Almost exactly the same thing, except um, Demeter is looking for her daughter. In this case, um, uh, Isis is looking for Osiris. So there is definitely a, a similarity between these two tales. And the notion of taking a child to um, make it immortal as a gift but then it's fun, and then but then the biological mother steps in, and that doesn't happen. Um, it's I, I I ponder that like what the meaning would be of that. You know, the idea that you as a mortal could become immortal uh, through the ministrations of the Earth Mother 
in some the magical earth mother in some form but that perhaps ultimately um either there's interference by our biological mothers or perhaps just interference by our um i don't know our our, our, our own conceptions, perhaps, about motherhood, or maybe what we consider to be the limitations of motherhood uh, in our human lives. So, uh, you know, so there's almost the implication there that um, the mother could be something that takes us to, you know, uh, you know, to that divine immortality. But we tend to focus, uh, but there tends to be, a, you know, um, but there tends to be a focus on um, the way in which the mother tends to restrict us. The mythology that we see, um, the, you know, that we see in developmental psychology and places like that, um, certainly in object relations theory, is the idea that you are you start out as this uh, child, and you, you know, that as a child you are connected to the mother. You are fully connected. You don't see yourself necessarily as separate from the mother. It's over, you know, within the first year of life and then over the first seven years of your life that you start to develop uh, an individuality. But you're still, there's still an attachment to the mother. It's said that after the age of seven, and of course as one gets into adolescence and into the teen years, that one develops a sense of independence from the family and certainly from the mother. We see this represented in um, initiation rites, for example, where the child is, you know, you know child, children who are starting to get out of hand are prepared to be initiated into the, you know, whatever the, um, the tribal, whatever their role as a man in a tribal society is supposed to be. So there's like a, a drama in which, you know, the mother pretends to try to hold on to the child and protect it from the, the men of the village who rush in at night as monsters to drag the child away. But the idea is that, you know, the child needs to be taken from the mother uh, to be, you know, to become a man. Okay, we have that idea uh, in cultures that are especially uh, more masculine centered in the way that they that they uh, interact with with you know with the world with society with culture and even though we don't have those sort of initiation rituals nonetheless we definitely have the idea in western culture that at some point you leave the mother and the family behind and you go out in the world to do your own thing it's also the basis of the hero myth and so here you know, this idea of, this this kind of puts a different spin on it. The idea that the mother is the one who actually um, provides you with an immortality that transcends your, you know, your, your normal human life development, psychological and otherwise. Um, so I find that interesting. And, you know, and to me that, that almost hints at the concept of Shakti, the idea that your real strength comes from the mother. Okay. So, something to think about. Okay, so there's another story of Isis that I want to talk about, and I'm going to actually read this from my own book. Okay, and I'd like to give you, I think I'd like to start from here by giving you a little bit of background. This is in the first chapter of Death and the Maiden. Um, let me find my first section here. Um, Okay, so we have, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Egyptian underworld because I think that that's um, worth, worth mentioning here. Um, it's funny, I'm trying to find, 
Okay. So in talking about the, I'm talking about ancient Egypt and death, I said, um, consider the time period in question. Before Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, there were 31 dynasties of pharaohs, with the first dating from approximately, approximately 3050 BCE. Um, ancient Egyptian history prior to Greco-Roman occupation is divided into Old, Middle, and New and Late Kingdom periods with three intermediate periods. There are three main texts offering information, the pyramid texts, um, the coffin texts from the Middle Kingdom, and then the books of the dead from the New Kingdom. You see the rise and fall of the importance of death rituals um, if the burials from these periods are considered. Two distinct trends. There was the traditional narrative of Seth and Horus and the trial vindicating Horus and punishing Seth. Um, during the New Kingdom period, Amenhotep IV, or Ankhenaten, um, challenged existing beliefs during the Armana period, creating a kind of monotheistic religion that only worshipped the sun god and abolished the idea of the afterlife. The dead dwelt in their tombs, not in another realm. Uh, however, this belief did not last, and the Egyptians returned to their previous belief about the afterlife, the books of the dead, now gaining central importance. Uh, the resurrection of Osiris by Isis was the central myth in the system, as well as the rise of Horus and defeat of Seth. After the 18th century, Amun-Ra became overlord of Osiris. Uh, the sun was reborn every day, where Osiris mained as a judge in the underworld. Uh, okay, so I wanted to uh, I wanted to mention that. Um, let's see. Okay, um, I mentioned here too that uh, the the Isis myth, the probably the most complete version we have, is written by Plutarch. So this would have been the Greco-Roman version, um, and you know that, that which is the version that I actually just explained to you about him being put into the sarcophagus. Um, okay, so I want to jump to this other story. Um, I wanted to you know mention a little bit about the about the Egyptian underworld and the you know and, and sort of the way it ended up being laid out over time. Uh, if you read the um, the Amduat or, you know, the, or the books of the dead, they actually go through chapter by chapter and they explain the different gates that the sun god passes through at night, uh, where he dies and basically is reborn and he's, you know, challenged by Apep, the, you know, uh, or Apophis, you know, the um, crocodile that tries to devour him at night. But uh, he is eventually reborn uh, in the morning and this happens every single night. And this, this underworld journey is very similar to the one that is made by the, the pharaohs and, and eventually by everybody um, in their life after death. So that's, that's the, the idea. And Isis herself ends up playing sort of a magical and, um, and, and again, this, this sort of magical healing role. She's meant to support the dead person on their journey. But she's not always considered to be so beneficent. Um, I wanted to tell you this story of the poisoning of Ra, okay? And Ra, of course, being the sun god. So Isis, I'm going to read this from, um, this is Lewis Spence's account. Isis, weary of the world of mortals, determined to enter that of the gods, and to this end made up her mind to worm his secret name from the almighty Ra. This name was known to no mortal and not even to any god but himself. By this time, Ra had grown old, and like many other vener another venerable person, he often permitted the saliva to flow from the corners of his mouth. Some of this fell to earth, and Isis, mixing it with soil, kneaded into the shape of a serpent, and cunningly laid it in the path traversed by the great god every day. 
Bursting upon uh, the world in his effulgence and attended by the entire pantheon, he was astounded when the serpent rising from its coil stung him. He called uh, all the gods to come and their healing words might make him well. And with him came Isis, who cunningly inquired what ailed him. He related the incident of the serpent and then added that he was suffering in the greatest agony. Then said Isis, tell me thy name, thy thine father, for the man shall live who was called by his name. Ra attempted a compromise by stating he was Kepera in the morning, Ra at noon, and Atem in the evening, but the poison worked more fearfully into him than before, and he could no longer walk. When his secret name was revealed, Isis immediately banished the poison from his veins, and he became whole again. Okay, so there's almost like a blackmail there. You know, you want to live, tell me your secret. Okay, and, and she does this, and of course, um, Ra is very, very angry with her for doing this, but... Um, but now she has his secret name, so this really makes her one of the most powerful magicians. Um, Isis, as I've noticed too, uh, tends to be connected with uh, Bess, who, which is a dwarf god that you see um, in ancient Egypt. Bess's origins are unknown. Um, <clears throat> there, to me, uh, the, the, the presence of Bess or Bess-like um, daemons in ancient Egypt, because they were called daemons, you know, more like demons, but again, not in the modern sense of demon, in that ancient sense of them as um, being spirits or messengers of the gods, reminds me a little bit of the kabirs, which are the dwarves associated with metalworking um, in ancient Greek thought. So I, I tend to think of that when it comes to Bess, but in the um, Greek magical papyri, I was just I had been reading through it, and Bess seems to be associated with a, a being referred to in those texts as the headless one. Uh, anyone familiar with Western magic will um, be aware of the bornless ritual, okay, that you see uh, with, associated with Crowley, and um, perhaps also to some degree with the Golden Dawn. Um, but the headless ritual um, is. The headless one is sometimes associated with Typhon, it's sometimes associated with Osiris, and sometimes with Bess. And in those rituals too, Bess ends up being conflated with Apollo, because Bess is called upon to, you know, as, as the headless one, to give an oracle, okay, give a prophecy. What happens though is, um, what, what I found interesting about those is that there was a reference to the Isis cloth. And the Isis cloth is apparent, is assumed to be uh, the black linen that is worn by um, people who belong to the cult of Isis at that time. Either a you know a particular strip of it, the ice, you know, the, the, you know, take to take a piece of that particular linen that was worn for that sacred purpose, and that if you bound that cloth around your neck, I mean, you you needed the cloth to sort of summon Bess to speak to you. Um, but there was a certain mixture, herbal mixture, that you could do to, to make the god finally go away and stop talking to you. But to keep the god from getting angry at you for doing that, you had to wear the cloth around your neck. Um, and I see that in a couple different rituals, which I think is um, is quite interesting. That connection to uh, prophecy that, um, well, it's also, again, in most of that part of the world associated with the dead. But in this case... This uh, this very earth like creek this earth this earthy creature this dwarf creature, who you know who kind of gains this this very you know almost in the way that Dionysus is an earthy being suddenly gets his gets conflated with the sun god. There's there's a solar aspect to Bess here as well um, in his connection to Apollo, and in fact F Apollo is actually invoked at the beginning of one of them in connection with Bess. So, but but Isis is the one who can. Um, you know, 
And, and Best, the, the connection there, I thought about it, why would Best be connected to Isis? But as we mentioned, Isis is something of, of an Earth mother. And there's a, um, you know, she's, as an Earth mother, she is, um, you know, Bess is also a protector of, he's, he's, he's an Earth being and he's also a protector of children. That's what he's associated with. You tend to see Bess associated more with Tolerate, but, uh, but there, there is also seems to be um, that, that connection there uh, in that motherly kind of an aspect that she has. Um, now, one of the thing, other things I wanted to mention, and I think it might be the last thing that I mentioned because I don't, uh, I've, I've jumped around a little more than I wanted to in this episode. Um, I've tried to keep, I've been trying to keep things kind of in a more, you know, linear fashion, but, you know, occasionally when you have, you have a lot of different notes from different places, you know, you get, um, <laughs> you get, you kind of get um, thrown out of order a little bit. But the one thing I do want to talk about uh, is this, this later Isis, this, this one, this, this magical Isis associated with the cult. And I want to talk about Carl Jung's uh, view. He equates Isis with Sophia in the Bible, okay? And he suggests that she was called, that Isis was called the Black One because of her association with fate and the mysteries of death. Even though she's not the Earth, she's seen by Jung as an Earth goddess for this reason. And I'm quoting my own book here, by the way. Um, and Jung says, all of these statements apply just as well to the prima material uh, in its feminine aspect. It is the moon, the mother of all things, the vessel. It consists of opposites, but has a thousand names. It is the earth and the serpent hidden in the earth, the blackness and the dew and the miraculous water, which brings together all that is divided. The water, therefore, is called mother. Jung is referring to aspects of alchemy, and we'll see that the mythology of Isis also applies to Greek magical figures like Medea and Kirke, and the conception of water and its relation to the earth will be central to the philosophy of Heraclitus. Um, now that's interesting too, if we think about the figures of Medea and Kirke, who both end up kind of having this almost um, villainous quality to them, or, or the negative anima quality in the case of Kirke, like turning men into pigs and Medea in her role in the, the murder of her, her brother or betraying her father. Um, you know, you, you can see qualities of the Isis myth there when we see Isis uh, betraying Ra, um, who's in some versions her husband and others, um, you know, there, there's a relationship there. But, um, but in others, uh, I should mention that she is sometimes also called, just as Sekhmet's called the Eye of Ra, which is usually a term that has to do with, um, with vengeance um, or with the fierce aspect of the sun. Uh, Isis has to do with, uh, you know, is sometimes is considered to assume that aspect as well. Okay, uh, he mentions Apuleius, this is Jung, will mention Apuleius as, as a source for the blackness of her robe and associates her with the magical arts, including possessing the elixir of life. This may have been part of the ancient Egyptian conception of Isis, or it may represent the later syncretism with Greek beliefs. Still, the conception that Isis has survived is this veiled Isis, okay? Um, remember Blavatsky's book, Isis Unveiled? Yeah. Who is the vessel of uh, the, the matter of good and evil, okay? So now that takes on a different inflection. That's like a, that's an inflection of judgment. There's also an association of Isis with the high priestess card in the tarot, 
uh, assuming the same thing. If you look at the Rider Waite version, you see that the, the priestess with the moon on her head, and you see the black and white pillars on either side, representing uh, that, that field of duality. Jung notes that Isis has a murderous role, not only as in the story I just mentioned, but is also a healer, for she not, is also the healer, she not only cured Ra of the poisoning, but put together the dismembered Osiris. As such, she personifies that arcane substance, be it dew or the aqua permens, which unites the hostile elements into one, or in Hinduism, as they would say, the Shakti. Um, Isis is also connected to the image of the Black Madonna that is prevalent in many European cathedrals, and the image of Isis with child and the Horus on her lap is that model, as I mentioned, for Madonna and child. Uh, to quote Joan Relke, the Great Mother delivers and cares for us all, even though in the end she destroys and subsumes us into her thrall, which is this perfect embodiment of mother, creative, um, creative destructive mother. Uh, Isis is the perfect embodiment of the complex mother archetype, and all her and her connection to the underworld gives her that chthonic quality. Uh, so, with that, I think I'm going to stop uh, right there, um, as I've covered the the main stories of Isis and the main connections that I've seen there, and and, and the reflections that I sort of have on that. So, with that, um, I want to thank you for listening again. Um, please check out chthonia.net for my podcasts, publications, other work. Um, I've got a lot of exciting new stuff coming up uh, for my related services in Reiki. I actually, I'm actually going to be having a new website put together. It's still going to be at liminalreiki.com, but uh, I'm taking the old Wix site down and having a new one redesigned, which Chthonia will eventually uh, be integrated with. We'll actually see some integrations in, in both sides. But everything's going to be uh, on WordPress now, which is going to be good. And I'm hoping to come out with an ebook version of Morrigan Timelines. So people who have wanted that uh, right now, Maeve is the only thing available. It's just because producing the ebook and, and putting it up on my Amazon server is... Uh, <laughs> um, it, it, let's just say it's technical stuff beyond what I really want to do. But, um, you know, it is what it is. And I will, you know, once I can get all of that put together. There's a, there's a lot of new things that are coming up. So please please do check out Cthonia.net um, and check out my social media. Um, Cthonia on YouTube, Cthonia Podcast, two words on Facebook, one word on Twi- uh, Instagram and Twitter. And also, if you're interested in supporting my work, please check out Patreon.com slash Cthonia. Big thank you to all of my uh, patrons, um, both current and the ones who have been around since the beginning. And I will see you in the next episode.